Hello and welcome to another episode of Death and Donuts. I am Seb James. Sorry for the delay in getting another episode up. This is episode three, but things happen, don't they? And uh, in the interim, since my last uh, episode, I went over to Vanuatu, so I organized a big service project or work camp over there, and we had a great time there, rebuilding a few classrooms in a school and painting a church. And then um, I was actually organizing a big trip to Florida to do some documentary work there, but COVID-19 occurred, and so everything has changed, but good things can happen even in the midst of COVID-19. And hopefully this episode is a good thing. So in this episode, I actually speak with a guy by the name of James Parker, who has what I would say is a tragic yet redemptive story. So just in brief, James was born in England. He was orphaned soon after birth with his twin sister. They were premature babies. A few years later, um, like in primary school and even in secondary school, he was abused multiple times by multiple men, people that he trusted. Um, And then a few years later at university, he entered a long-term same-sex relationship. It was a very good thing for him at that time. And fast forward to now, he's happily married and living with his wife and daughter in Western Australia. Now that seems all a bit confusing, doesn't it? But listen to the podcast and you will understand um, his journey. And he's actually got a very incredible CV as well. Um, It would be way too long to read here, but just some snippets. He's worked for the Olympics, the Paralympics and the Vatican in various sorts of jobs. Um, And right now he's actually trying to help a lot of people in many and various ways. In fact, before we started the interview, he told me that he is, he's just started a group to help women who are struggling with porn addiction. So the reason I wanted to speak with James is I wanted to know how he found healing after such great evils had been committed against him and by Christians. Heartbreaking evils of the, you know, repetitive sexual abuse, rape, and, and, and you know, by men he, he trusted and his family trusted. And then how, second thing is how in the midst of living a very promiscuous lifestyle, he was also struggling with porn and alcohol addiction, that he was on this journey towards the Logos, that he was actually deliberately forming a personal relationship with Jesus Christ while he was like in a long-term relationship, uh, a gay relationship. And also he'd been betrayed, don't forget, by so many Christians. So he was already looking for Christ in the midst of all this. Now, is that even possible? Well, James can give us an answer to that, and he does. So in this podcast, James tells his life story from conception up until today, and then he talks about some things he's learned along the way, and then I throw a few pertinent questions at him. So please listen to this story because I'm I'm sure you will take something important from it. Thank you. Hear this. This is my story. So rather than being conceived in um, a loving marriage or even an unloving marriage, but nevertheless a committed relationship, I was conceived in a three-week love affair between a Syrian student and an, an English lady who was still officially married but separated from her husband. So already the circumstances, I've got the word challenging written over them. Um, Because of a three-week love affair, my father, my blood father at least, he flew back to the Middle East and my mother lost contact with him. Um, As would happen, it was just a a love affair. Uh, Then she missed her period and she found herself pregnant. 
And seven months later, she gave birth, not just to me, but she gave birth also to my twin sister. She hadn't even known she was having twins um, at that stage. Uh, she also knew that she couldn't afford to keep the baby, particularly not the babies. And so literally, as she gave birth to us, she abandoned us. Or so I learned 30 years later when I went to find her around my 30th birthday. Um, so my twin sister and I, we were a kilo or so each, and we were incubated for three months. Now, we didn't have the touch and the gaze and the joy of somebody celebrating our life. There was no phone call to say, hey, guess what? It's a boy, and there's a nursery waiting, and there's clothes waiting. We literally were naked, homeless, and, uh, and without food. But, you know, God provides. And so we managed to fight our way through those three months in the incubator. We were then fostered for three months. And then we were placed into an orphanage for a time. Because as bizarre as this might sound, but when I was born some 50 years ago, people didn't want mixed race babies. Now, people listening to this and they're just hearing my voice. But if you could see me, I look as British and as white and as Anglo-Saxon as you can imagine. But the paperwork didn't say that. It said I was mixed race. And so therefore, people were actually quite racist. So I often say I experienced racism even before people had seen me um, as a baby. Um, but then I was adopted into a wonderful um, Anglican family. My, my, my adoptive parents, mum and dad, as I know them, Mr. and Mrs. Parker, they had um, a five-year-old girl, a three-year-old boy, a two-year-old boy, and they adopted twins of six months. So there's only five years between all five of us. And we lived very close, as a very close-knit family. I was raised very much um, in a Christian home. I was raised as an Anglican, and it wasn't just raised as an Anglican. We would go to church twice on a Sunday, Holy Communion in the morning, even song at night. And from the age that you could stand and sing, you would be in the choir, and then you would serve on the altar as well later in life. And I was sent to an, in a, a rather evangelical primary school as a child. And we would sing songs to Jesus and you'd have the opportunity to give your life to Jesus. The challenge for me was this. Um, a couple of early things happened in my childhood. One was at the age of three before I even went to the evangelical school. And one day I was in kindergarten and my twin, my, having five kids with five years difference means mom was just desperately trying to get all the kids dressed and get them yeah, sent off to yeah. school. And on this particular day um, is she couldn't find a pair of little boys, blue jocks, whatever color my jocks would be. So she grabbed a pair of my sister's knickers and put them on me and then pulled my shorts up and sent me out of the house. <laughs> well, clearly my twin sister had seen this out of the corner of her eyes. So in the middle of kindergarten on this particular day, I'm playing with the boys and my twin sister walks up behind me and she pulls my trousers down and she goes, look, my brother's wearing my knickers. And they were mm -hmm. pink and they were frilly and all the boys laughed at me and all the girls laughed at me. And this was my twin sister doing this to me, the one person who traveled this life journey with me up to the age of three. And this was my earliest traumatic shaming moment. I was shamed before the boys and I was shamed before the girls. And in some way, I just cried and cried and cried and ate the rest of the, rest of the biscuit barrel. Somebody gave me the biscuit barrel and I just ate them all, really. And that was comfort eating, if nothing else. And I thought nothing of it. But then I went to, to primary school and I ended up being, going to an all-girls primary school for the first couple of years to help my twin sister settle in. But then I was sent to an all-boys primary school where my brothers were. And it felt absolutely foreign to me. I could not relate to these boys. And I pulled up my mother's skirt every day, begging her not to send me into the school. And I cried and cried and cried. And that basically, I was what one might today say a sissy boy. 
rather than being formed in school with football and a bruising ball the other boys, I'd learned to sort of deal with ballet and bunny rabbits with all the girls in this old girls' school. So in some way, rather than receiving what I was healthy for me and to begin to take my place alongside the other boys at the age of four or five or six, I'd taken my place alongside girls. And in the boys' school, the boys kind of bullied me. I got all the female roles in any of the drama productions. And of course, I was quite creative and dramatic. Some would say I still am. They're um, <laughs> allowed to say that. I think I am myself, mate, I tell you. But, um, yeah. but what happened is, at the age of eight, I began being sexually abused by a Christian teacher in the school. And this was sort of punishment for not getting my religious studies correct. So it was basically using scripture and religion against me to sexually abuse me. And that went on every week for three years. And I kept that hidden. But of course, rather than my being affirmed by a man and, and, and man giving me healthy attention and really you know, um, being appropriately affectionate with me and affirming me as a little boy, saying, you're going to be a great guy one day, etc. I was basically being used and crushed and diminished totally in my, in my, any form of masculine identity that I had. And that was very limited anyway. Mm -hmm. Alongside that, a family friend, my having now been sexualized at the age of eight, also began to sexually abuse me. Uh, and that also went on for three years alongside what the teacher was doing. So by the time I hit 11, I'd learned what it was to live a shameful, secretive life. I'd been aroused from a very early age. I couldn't understand arousal, but I knew I liked it. But I also hated it because I had no control over these bigger men doing these things to me. So I got what's called an ambivalence going on within me. You know, my erogenous zones have been messed about with, and I like it because that's God's design. But arousal is meant for our wedding night and not before. And this is the problem we have in a sexualized, pornographied society today. For so many young men and women, we've been, we've been aroused to what we've been taught at school, to what we've seen on TV, to what we can look at on our telephones and the rest of it. And what's happening is we are literally destroying our souls and we're preventing ourselves from being able to truly enter into the beautiful covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So anyway, by the age of 11, I was kind of spewed out of, um, of all the abuse in some way or other. Um, by the age of 14, it's no surprise that I contacted the Lesbian and Gay Switchboard in London. Um, that's when the phone was still stuck on the wall. Some of you won't remember that, some of you listening to this. <laughs> but the phone was stuck on the wall, and I called the Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, and I said, I think I might be gay. And they said, why? I said, well, I, they said, do you, do you find the other boys attractive, the other men attractive? I said, I do. They said, yes, you are gay. And literally, at the age of 14, they labelled me. They didn't do any diagnosis. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know my family background, where I was living. But they affirmed me in that identity. So I began to think, this must be who I am. Mm. You know, so I began deep down to, to realize I got this big secret. If anybody knows, it'll be terrible. There were no gay characters on television. There was, mm. there was no internet to go and discover more about this. There might be one or even two books in the library with even a mention of homosexuality in them. But otherwise, it was frowned upon by everybody and anybody. Um, and to this day, I still fight for spaces so that people can come out. I think it's really important that people can be honest about what they feel. I don't like labels. I don't think anybody should have a label apart from the word Christ, which is what we were made for anyway. Um, you know, but otherwise, um, what happens is, um, is there I am as a 14-year-old, 15, 16, 17-year-old, and I'm becoming more and more addicted to pornography. I found a way to be able to purchase hardcore pornography from Scandinavia, from Sweden and Norway. And so by the time I'm 17, I am literally addicted to this stuff. Actually, by the age of 16, I'm now starting to steal alcohol. I'm drinking. I'm basically trying to numb the pain. Mm. 
The alcohol was like the biscuit barrel for me at the age of three when I was shamed. Only mm. the alcohol had a better numbing effect for me. Mm. So by the age of 17, I'd actually um, been very drunk at the age of 16 one night, very drunk, and I was raped by a teacher at school. At the age of 17, I came out to my parents, and, and by the age of 18, I'd also been raped by two other different teachers at school. And there I am in a, um, um, a top private Jesuit school, Catholic school. Even though I'm still an Anglican, um, uh, there I am. I've been sent to a Jesuit high school. Um, so there's no, no wonder at the age of 17, I came out to my parents and at 18, I went to London and, and I threw myself into the gay community. And um, I believed that my life calling was to be able to tell the churches in particular, but any institution that turned around and said, oh, um, gay's not okay. I said, back off. This is who we are. This is who God's made us to be. You need to change your stupid, archaic, antiquated teaching and get real, this is ours and we're not going away. So basically I, I took on that victim mentality and I had um, a deep, deep aggression within me that really was rippling out of the pain of my childhood and my teenage years. Wow. And from there, so what happened is I, I entered into a, um, look, let me say this, I was still praying, you know. I mean, mate, through the whole yeah, of this, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to Holy Communion in my Anglican church and, mm. and I'm kind of drifting in and out of Mass a little bit. I'm actually deep down, my soul is hungry for God. Mm. I'm hungry to belong. I'm, I'm hungry to really be seen, to really be affirmed, and to really have healthy affection. By this point, affection had just become sexualized. My world was a sexualized, alcoholized world. I was surrounding the gay community in London by a lot of drugs. And, and by the grace of God, I didn't get into that. Mm. And I was also surrounded by an enormous amount of HIV and people dropping dead of AIDS at the time. And by God's grace alone, I have no idea how I didn't end up positive. But here I am today. Mm. And, and there's no judgment on those who are positive. I pray often for them. And I've lost many mm. friends. through that. Mm. Um, but it just shows that our life choices and sometimes not facing some of the pain of our past and letting God, sometimes we can live our whole life out of the, the pain of our environmental, um, uh, the environmental situations that we've found ourselves in. Anyway, there I am. I'm 18, 19 years of age. I'm still praying and I'm praying to God that I'd meet my Mr. Right. And um, all I can say is this is I, I in typical fashion, um, being a little bit OCD, not too much, but a little bit. I had my long list of all the things I wanted in my perfect man and I found him. Well, and, and I'm not saying that God goes ahead and answers those prayers, but God understands our needs. And I think you realize just how stubborn a man I, I am. And so what happened is he, um, he almost permitted those, those prayers to be answered. And I, and I found myself suddenly in this long-term um, homosexual relationship. And, um, and it was in the midst of that relationship that um, another guy in the last part of my university years, he came up to me and he said, do you want more love in your life? And I said to him, well, who, who doesn't, you know? Everyone wants more love in their life. He said, well, some of us are going to gather together, just a, a, a gathering of young people to worship the Lord, look at the scriptures, to look at who the Holy Spirit is. And these were young Catholics gathering together. And it was something called a Life in the Spirit seminar. I got no idea what he was talking about, but I liked this guy. Mm. And, and he would give me attention and... And, and he'd be very affirming of me. So I went along. 
And I came to understanding, which nobody had ever told me, that actually I could enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, John Paul II was saying this all the time. And Pope Benedict since said it, Pope Francis is now saying, we have to have that personal relationship. This isn't about doing religion. This is about being in um, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit a relationship. So literally one day I said, well, I want that love and I want to be in relationship with God. So we said, well, you've got to make a prayer of repentance. So I said, Lord, for whatever might stand in the way of your love, I am sorry, I repent. Send me your love. Send me your Holy Spirit. And, and I didn't quite realize that I was giving, literally giving God permission to go into the driving seat of my life. I felt nothing at all. I felt nothing, but I made that prayer. And a friend of mine then said, the same friend of mine who'd invited me said, look, in faith, it's important you now believe what you prayed. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, start with a couple of minutes prayer a day, just being still and quiet. Now, I know I can talk a lot now, but I've quieted down enormously compared to what I was, let me tell you. <laughs> and so for me to be still three minutes a day was just a miracle. <laughs> I mean, its mouth went 10 times the speed it does now. <laughs> anyway, um, that's grace alone. Um, anyway, so I, but I, I learned, honestly, I learned to be quiet for a couple of minutes a day. Mm. And by, by the space of six weeks, I got it down to about eight minutes. Mm. And my, my, um, my long-term boyfriend, he's, he said to me, his name was Steve. He said to me, he said, James, he said, there's something different about you. And it was my soul itself was beginning to be stilled for the first time in my life. And um, as I learned to take prayer seriously, just going to prayer, being still, I might take one verse from the Bible. It could be cast all your burdens upon the Lord for he cares for you. And I learned just to, just to sip and to nibble away at that verse, you know, and, and, and to chew and chew and chew upon it, etc. Anyway, my boyfriend said, can I have a slice of what you've got? And I said, yes, you come along to these meetings too. So here we were, this sort of long-term practicing gay couple going along to this, this youth gathering with all these other young people. And, and, um, and they welcomed us and they didn't question us about our sexuality. They basically pointed us as sinners themselves. They pointed us towards Jesus. And they said, we're pursuing holiness. Come with us. Come and pursue holiness. Come and pursue sainthood with us. And so we did. So we learned to read our Bibles and we learned to break open the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and we became this sort of archetypal Christian Catholic gay couple. My, my boyfriend was a lapsed Catholic. So he came back to mass and I started to attend mass with him as an Anglican. Mm. And, um, but within a number of months of really learning to deepen in prayer, the Holy Spirit began to really remove the veils from my eyes. And I began to see that Steve had never been deeply and sufficiently affirmed in his masculine identity. He'd never quite made it into manhood, you know, and, and, and I certainly hadn't. I was very much the feminine partner in this relationship. But the Holy Spirit began to show me the deeper I went into my prayer. And it, and it says the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, Jesus said. He will be a wonderful counselor, full of wonder. Mm-hmm. And here he was wonderfully counseling me. And he began to show me that Steve was trying to find a sense of fulfillment in me of his own masculinity that I was trying to find of my own masculinity in him. And neither of us could meet it. And that's why so many. Um, gay relationships become open relationships or you know they're all sort of sparkling glitter to begin with and then they end up sort of looking elsewhere or asking for a third or fourth partner to join in their in what their their antics in the bedroom and the like and that's very very common today even for those who say they're married it's very common you've only got to go into the the gay apps to realize it's happening far and wide Mm. but it isn't talked about 
But this is the, in a sense, the second class life that our brothers and sisters um, live with. And, and I don't like them living with that. Anyway, the Lord called me to a place of leaving that relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and it was the best thing I'd ever had, but I chose to leave it. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a really important line I want our listeners to hear today. It's this. It's, when I finish with Steve, my Anglican, sorry, my Catholic chaplain at university came to me and said, when he heard I'd finished with Steve, he said, you're mad. He said, go back to him. He's the best thing you've ever had. And I said to him, no, I can't. God has told me otherwise. And my Anglican priest friend in, in my, from where I, I was raised and grew up, who I'd known for a number of years, when he heard I'd finished with Steve, he said to me, you're crazy. Steve's the best thing you'll ever get. Go back to him. And I ignored the, the so-called wisdom of both of these so-called godly men. And I don't judge them. But I knew what the Holy Spirit had said to me. And I thank God to this day that I walked away, not just from Steve, but from the LGBTQIA plus 2S community, which in those days was just the LNG community. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, such as things changed. But because then what happened is then the Lord took me on a journey of deeper, deeper prayer. And he began to show me as I had a community of fellow believers around me, people who loved me and I was regularly worshiping, regularly reading my Bible and regularly attending mass, even though I wasn't a Catholic and I was getting into the rosary and, and I was beginning to realize that Jesus doesn't just want me to have a personal relationship with him, but with his mother as well and with his father. And I've got to say yes to all of this. Now, what I didn't realize is as I began to say yes through Jesus to his mother and to his father, he was beginning to restore in me the profound father wound and mother wound with which I'd been born. So here I was suddenly with a forever mummy and a forever daddy who were both perfect. And what happened is as their, as their presence and their healing balm began to restore my soul, I began to go back and to begin to be willing to face the profound pain, even of my own, my conception of my time in the womb, the fear of being born, of being abandoned, of being incubated, fostered in the orphanage, and all those things that went on. And um, uh, the Lord gave me a whole new family in the communion of saints. And he gave me a mother in his church, and he gave me another father through the Holy Father. And so I came to a place where I could not convert and become a Catholic. But one of the most defining things in my life and in the lives of all of us, and and even as we record this, uh, I'm conscious that we're not able to receive the Eucharist at this time. And for me, this is incredibly painful because the way in which the Lord restored my broken, abused body is every time, having become a Catholic, every time I go to the Eucharist, the Lord began to say to me, I want you to deliberately give me your body. And I want you to deliberately exchange your body, James, for my body as I feed you. Now, I don't know about you, but for many years, I thought that I was consuming Jesus and I received the Eucharist. And the Lord began to show me that that wasn't true. I was being consumed into him. I was being consumed into his mystical body. And in doing so, what happened is he began literally to repair me. And for 18 months in my mid-20s, every day I went to Mass, I wept and I wept profusely at Mass. And I had no idea why, but I just let the tears come and I learned to let my heart live beside Christ's sacred heart and be brought to the heart of the Father through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I wept and wept and wept. Then at the end of the 18 months, these tears just stopped. And I went back into my prayer and I, I went into dialogue with the Lord. And I said, Lord, 
tell me, what was that all about? And I hear that word dialogue. It wasn't just me having a monologue and talking about God. I then had to shut up and listen. So then I listened. And slowly but surely, the Lord began to show me that in those 18 months, he said, I wanted you to grieve for every time that you've been abused or you've been raped. Every time. And I wanted you to grieve as you receive, as my body, as, sorry, as I receive your body into mine, I wanted to give you a safe place to grieve. And that's what happened. And, and at the end of the 18 months, I began to realize that I loved being in my body for the first time. And I loved being a man. And yet I hated my manhood. My manhood had been totally crushed and, and dismissed and been divorced from me. And, and what was happening is through the Eucharist, the Lord was restoring me. And through his mother, what happens, he was showing me that I wasn't a woman, that I was a man. And that here, was, here I was, you know, as I held on to Mary, I didn't have to look to another woman to be a perfect woman for me. I didn't have to look to my mother's or, and she was going to be faithful to me as Christ is faithful to me. Um, and so really what happened is as I began to enjoy being a man, I began to take my place as a man alongside other men. And I stopped being frightened of the world of other men. I stopped comparing myself to the men. I began to see myself as complementary against other men rather than in competition with them. And then what happened is really men stopped being a mystery to me. And as men stopped being a mystery to me, I stopped eroticizing them, wanting to devour them and to wonder what they look like naked or to want to be close to them or, or to worship them or have them as idols. They stopped being them. So basically my same-sex attraction just dissipated and dissolved and almost disappeared. Uh, and of course, because we're made by mystery, for mystery, and God is that mystery, then God has created in such a way that we would live out that mystery, man desiring woman. Because let's be honest, men will never understand women, and women will definitely <laughs> never understand men. And that's no bad thing. You know, <laughs> as frustrating as it is most of the time, it's actually a good and godly thing. God is saying, yeah. hey, guess what? He's saying, in there is a mystery, and that mystery has been created by me, and, and I want you to long for the banquet. I've got a feast ready for your soul, a banquet ready for your soul, it says in the Psalms. Um, and that is the marriage of the lamb with his bride and we are his bride, that mystical bride. And so what happens is um, I find myself finding women attractive and then I began to date women. Um, and then I came to a point where eventually I married um, and had the incredible joy of just becoming a father. Uh, and now you've got to remember, these, these were things I was told categorically in my teenage years I would never have and I would never be able to have. Now, some would say today, oh, well, you can be married. You could marry another man if you wanted to, and you can have surrogacy and the rest of it. Well, let me tell you, having lived a long-term gay relationship and a long-term heterosexual relationship, they are definitely, definitely not the same at all. They do not have They don't have the characteristics and attributes to be able to be the same. Mm. And that's why I fought hammer tooth and nail during the same sex marriage debate to say, this isn't marriage. This is a same sex mirage. It's not a marriage. And we're lying to lesbian and gay couples telling them that they can have something that's equal to what the heterosexuals are. It isn't. And it will stop them from actually going in pursuit of actually a greater vision and um, a greater and richer and more fulfilled life that God has in store for them. Now, Many people here in Australia say to me, oh my gosh, yours is such a unique story. And I say, no, don't say that to me. I know literally hundreds of people in Australia with the same story as mine. It's just that I've chosen to speak mine, to speak it loudly. Mm -hmm. 
For many others, they're getting on with their lives as teachers, in some cases, lawyers or legal experts. In other cases, there's, there's people who are, you know, sometimes they struggle a bit with their sexuality, but, you know, they are married maybe, or they're dating and what's happening. There are a lot more of these stories out there than you realize. And what's happening is the world is trying to make us believe the world's word rather than God's word. Mm. You see, nothing is impossible for God and God's design is, is, is perfect. And he's very clear in Genesis 1 to 3, male and female, I created them. So what will the world and what will the dark principalities and powers that we read of in Ephesians 6 verse 12, what are they going to be up to? They're going to try and destroy the truths of Genesis 1 to 6, that we are created in the image and likeness of God and that man and female created them. So there is no surprise that we've gone from a place of um, sex with, only within marriage to contraception that permitted sex outside of marriage to then um, uh, so almost celebrating adultery to then embracing homosexuality to then embracing pansexuality and pornography to coming to a place today where actually we haven't just got transgenderism we've got people who want to act like dogs or like animals and there's bears and there's cubs and there's otters and there's puppies and literally we have rejected the image and likeness of God and we take on the image and likeness of the created world, and we lose a sense of ourselves. It's a little bit like having a mobile phone. We've all got one of those. But if you don't plug your mobile phone into the power source every day, then what happens is, is your mobile phone becomes something that's ugly. It can become a doorstop. It could become something that, you know, you, I don't know, um, you use it to, 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 to prop something up in your bedroom or your bookcase or something, but it's, it loses a sense of what it was created for. And it stops having the potential that it was originally called to have. And so what happened is we're seeing a world where in many ways our society is giving so much mixed messaging that you can have all these different crazy genders. They don't exist. They're all counterfeits. There's only two. It's male and female. Look at your biology. It will tell you. So will your chromosomes. Um, mm. But we've gone into a world that is now beginning to embrace lies after lies after lies. And it particularly wants to lie to millennials and to young people. And, and many of them are taking this on board. So never have the hands of the priest been more important than today in absolution to forgive us our sins and to be able to bless the bread and wine that, they, that transubstantiation should take place so they can bring us Christ's body and blood. And that the witness of celibacy has never been more important, that we aren't about sex, we are about love. And that the sexual act has its right and proper place, and that is within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And until then, we need each other as brothers to really support each other in this, um, in this, uh, this vision of chastity until we're married, if we're going to be able to be married. Um, and to, for the women to help each other along that road. And that's why I'm passionate about building groups where people, one, can talk about the mess that their nurture and this world has had on them. But also they can come in touch with Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit to have a little bit of a healing touch, little steps, bit by bit, for God to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, as it says in Joel, 2, chapter, uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 25. You asked me about my childhood, and, and I went into much of, of the rest of my life there. So um, That's good. I should probably shut up and let you ask me a couple of other questions. <laughs> No, I actually, you know what, as you were going through all of that, I realized this is fantastic because now that everyone here knows your story, um, I can throw a few questions at you that you Great. might be able to um, unpack or give, try and give an answer to. And 
you know, um, there, are, there are many things that you were damaged by um, in, in your life. But I see that, um, firstly, you, you talk a lot about providence and this idea that, you know, despite all the things that happened, all the bad things, you seem to feel like or experience this sense that our Lord was present in some way. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think that's, um, yeah, you know, that's a very to. difficult thing for people to understand is like, you know, how does a, how does God watch a, a child get abused and, and yes. how does he allow that? But yet he can somehow... Well, yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the first thing is this is God has given us his, God has, God has given us free will. And God is such a respecter and he loves us so much. Love never, hear me, it never forces, never. So God gives us free will and then he doesn't say, oh, right, you're going to do something bad, I'm going to take it away from you. God never designed that a child should be abused. But because he knew that ultimately man, if man turned around, and ate of the tree of good, of, of good and evil, then what happens is that, is that, of course, man would abuse. He'd be grossly abusive, not just to himself, but he'd abuse everybody else in the meantime as well. And if he'd, he'd have neglect, and he'd neglect others too. So that's why he sent Jesus. Now, I remember bringing the, this naked small child that's been abused. I brought him into the presence of the Lord. And I remember crying out to Jesus and, and, and I had a wonderful elderly Christian man walking through this journey with me. It's something I couldn't have done on my own. And, and he walked through this with me and, and he said to me, Jesus was there. Ask the father to reveal to you where was Jesus. And I used to get abused in this sort of um, very, very dark room with a little bit of light. There was a very tiny window up in the roof, up in, up in the school where I was. It's probably like the fourth or fifth floor in some of these Victorian buildings in England. And a little bit of light would come through and, and I'd say, Jesus, where are you? And I thought Jesus would appear or manifest himself into the white robes, the couple of cups in his hand and say, here I am. Well, he didn't. And I was like crying out to him, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And literally in my mind's eye, and I can't describe it any better than that really, is I was, became aware of this blob of just gross flesh in the corner of the room. And as I focused on this corner of the room, this block of this flesh, I realized it was the absolutely beaten and thrashed to death body of Christ. Here was this man covered in spittle and feces, urine and everything else. Who just every bit of his body had been mutilated. And Jesus was there saying, I did all this for you, James. I know exactly what you went through. They abused me. Every orifice, every bit about me took exactly, took everything on for you, everything. Mm. And suddenly I was able to realize that he never abandoned me. He says in Joshua chapter one, I think, you know, I will never leave you or forsake you. And again, his word was ringing true and ringing true to the very core of my being. And here I was, therefore, realizing that you know, whatever the tragedy of anybody's life, and let me tell you, I hear some incredibly tragic stories, but I know, because I know, that Christ was present there. And I know that Christ has a way out, because there is no way I should still be alive today. I realized the teacher who abused me, I came to learn in my um, late 30s that he'd abused many other boys in my year at school, and a number of my peers committed suicide in their teens and 20s. It seems very likely it, can, it, can, it, was, it was because of that. There's a number of us who are still alive, and a lot of the other guys are in serious addictive behavior and in prison because of what happened. 
this is why we're always to never judge others, but we're to bring mercy to their lives. We've never really understanding what's happening to others. And that's why, even though in some quarters, I'm seen to be against people who identify as lesbian and gay, I'm not. In fact, my heart reaches out to them ever more, I don't know, vividly than they would do to most people. But I just see everybody's equal. We all have our story, we all have our nurture, but I can say this confidently. And this is why I, I, I'm, I'm, not an, I'm not an optimist. I'm a man of hope and I'm a man of Christ-centered hope because I know that Christ has gone before us in everything. And he's shown me that, that, that if he can restore my life and the way in which I was so isolated and, and brutalized in my childhood um, for all the wrong reasons, even using religions and God's word against me to abuse me. Uh, and the very thing God showed me that, that his word would set me free. Um, and I'm still on that journey. Of course, I'm broken and a sinner. But, but I tell you something, I never, never, never in my wildest dreams expected to be where I am today. And I particularly say this to young men and women who are thinking, I wonder what my life's going to be. I said, stop wondering about where it's going to be. Just focus on Jesus. Focus on the faith and focus on the Catholic faith. And I'll say this as well. It's really important people hear this. You know, this might sound a bit crude, but I'm being really bluntly honest. And I've said this publicly on a couple of occasions. I said, you know, as an Anglican or as an evangelical or Protestant, I could find salvation. I could find Jesus Christ. But I could not find healing and the restorative work my soul needed outside of the Catholic Church. I needed Mary. I needed the sacrament of reconciliation. I needed Eucharist. I still do. And without those things, I don't know that I'd have been able to grow and become the man that I am today. I don't think my voice would have dropped as it did. I don't think my walk would have changed as it did. I just don't think I'd, I mean, you know, I, I just don't feel threatened by any man. And yet years ago, I was threatened by every man. Wow. Um, the total inverse. Incredible. Thank you for that. And so uh, a little, I told you a little bit about myself. So I deal a lot with um, young men. Uh, in their teens and in their 20s and you you spoke a little bit about pornography there um, I'm finding that yeah a lot of people are being harmed by pornography um, personally they're becoming sort of addicted to it in some way um, and sometimes it gets uh, to a level of addiction where they need a more novelty so they go into deeper darker right. forms of pornography and I find it hard and, you know, I struggled with pornography myself. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and, and, yep, and it was very common. I was one of the sort of ringleaders in my schooling years to, you know, get guys to go that way. Obviously I have my own journey to Jesus Christ and um, I'm obviously very thankful for that. And I pray for all my friends that perhaps haven't gone on that journey or aren't, um, you know, haven't formed a, a public relationship with our Lord yet. But anyway, the point is, I, um, I don't always know what to say to these young men. Um, you know, I, I want to instill hope in them. And, um, and I just maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what you yeah. think is the message we need to give these guys who feel like they've got no way out. Well, I say this, the, first and for, the, the thing is this is, first of all, Satan can create nothing. He can only twist what is good. So in every sinful or shameful act, Satan is twisting what's good. So there's something good in it. So the first thing to know is this, and I'm not saying that pornography or looking at pornography is good, but the intention 
that people often go towards pornography with, the intention is good. What these young men are saying is, I want to know what love is. I want to know what it means to be vulnerable and transparent. I want to know what it means to be naked. I want to know what it means to connect. I want to know what it means to be able to have affection. I want to know what it means to be able to enter into an intimate situation and to come out and feel successful and not humiliated or second class. So for most young men today, and the women too, who move towards pornography, in some cases, there's a lot of lust going on. I'm not saying there's not, but actually in the majority of cases, many of our young men and women today are moving towards pornography out of a sense of anxiety. Their anxiety is about their own identity. I don't know who I am. So I'm hoping I'll find out who I am. Their other anxiety is I don't really know how to have a relationship with other people. In fact, I don't know that I'm at peace with myself even. That's why our prayer is so important. And finding healthy, non-erotic gatherings of young people, particularly in the Catholic Church, is imperative. It's imperative place to grow and to learn about who they are as men and women. So what's happening is there's a lot of good things that people are looking for. The challenge is this, and St. John Paul II said this. He said, the problem with porn is not that it shows too much. It doesn't show enough. It doesn't show the full context. So what happens is it's a little bit like having... You know, um, most parts of the, of, of, of the car, you know, I've got three wheels on my car and I've got a tank full of petrol. I'm going to drive off. Well, before you know it, you're going to cause a really, some really serious damage to yourself and to other people on the road because you haven't got your four wheels on. You haven't got the full picture. But ultimately, what these young people are looking for is often, if they're feeling anxiety about who they are or anxiety in their lives, they've discovered pornography gives them a dopamine rush. And it gives a very similar rush to heroin. And they're also discovering, and we've got images of brain scans today, that actually pornography is even more addictive than heroin itself. And that should alarm some people. Because it means if I really get into this stuff, and many have, and it's not, there's not a way out because there is. But if you stay in it, you're literally mashing your mind. Praise God for something called neuroplasticity. This means the brain is able to reshape it back to what God originally wants it to be like. And so there's always hope, Christ-centered hope. I keep talking about this. But I'd say this is, one of, one of, one of the, the important things for them to recognize is their pursuit of pornography is often a running away from looking at what is painful in their lives or quite challenging and difficult. And I'm hoping through what I've already shared is I'm saying that Jesus has already gone ahead of you. Anything that's challenging or painful and difficult, until you come to know Jesus, it, he, he can't take you out of it and lead you so you can be free to enjoy the, the um, you know, fresh and green of the pastures where he gives, lets me have repose and lie down, as it says in Psalm 23. You've got a shepherd saying, oi, stop trying to eat bitumen. Come over here, come through this gate. There's some green, green grass to eat. You know what I mean? And this is our problem. It's yeah, not yeah. I mean, you're right to take your head to the ground to want to eat if you're a sheep, but eat in the right field. Mm. And basically what's happening is Satan has tempted us away. I mean, Adam was right. He went, wow, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He's like, this Eve stuff, she's gorgeous. Thank you, Lord. Mm. But it has to be in the right context. And mm. the problem is this is we've all been lied to and lied again and told, this stuff will help you feel alive. This will help you become a man. Well, it doesn't. All it does is in young men, it creates something called erectile dysfunction. They can only get a hard on. And yeah, I know this is a, a 
podcast, but let's say for what it is. You don't mm. get a hard if you're looking at porn. You know, get rid of this stuff. I mean, what we're all looking for, we're looking for others to look us in the eyes and to see us, really see us, and to give attention to us. We're looking for others to affirm us and to say, hey, you've got everything it takes to be a man. I can see it in you. You've got these qualities. You know, you're going to grow to be a strong guy and all the rest of it. There's no reason why you shouldn't. Mm. And we need good affection. And we live in a world today, and particularly for millennials and um, for other young, young male adults today, you have always grown up, always in a society where gays are in some way celebrated. And therefore, if you have a slight sense of intimacy with another man, even just friendship, people go, oh, you're gay, you're queer. Well, that's Satan's tactic to stop us from being iron, sharpening iron, as it says in Proverbs 27. It wants to stop men having really healthy friendships. And that's why I build friendships or seek to get guys to build friendships between themselves, to be really honest about their porn, to be really honest about how much masturbation they're doing, to be really honest about what they're thinking, and to start being really honest about their categories. One other point on porn, well, I've got lots of points, I should say, but maybe that's another <laughs> this is podcast. The, yeah, this is the last that, one. Yeah. Maybe that's another <laughs> podcast. I mean, I'm quite seriously, because there's a lot, there's lot to say on porn, and there's a lot to yeah. here. But you know, yeah. even, even in the categories that people go to look at, and we know there's a whole ream of categories now, mm. not just under the straight stuff, but under the gay stuff and the trans stuff and everything else. But even the categories people go to, it says a lot about what their heart is searching for. So if you've got a young man who, you know, wants to be there and he wants to be the guy um, uh, with all these women around him, is it means he, he wants to try and prove himself to all these women. Mm. If there's a guy, if there's a guy there who um, uh, he wants to be having group sex with one woman, he's saying, I'm, can I be as good as the other guys in this department? Mm. You know, if there's guys, the, some stuff is the fetish stuff. And what happens is we end up, learning to, to hook our desire to belong onto a thing or onto an action rather than onto God. So in all these things, the calling is still back to Christ. It is still back through Christ into the arms of the Father mm. with the loving mother that's pointing the way there, interceding for us all along. And the communion of saints that is also there saying, come on, come on, get up. Don't forget you're called to be holy. Don't forget you're called to be saints. You're the saints of the third millennium. So in some way, rather than just seeing the porn stuff as, oh, I can't talk about this, it's really shameful. It's like, let's all talk about it. Most people are struggling with it. You know, and those of us, I mean, for me, I, I, I barely struggle with it, but could I struggle? Of course I can. I mean, I was an, a total addict. I could fall just like that, quite easily. Mm. But what's happened is I've come to understand, and I want guys to know this. You know, I've come to understand that actually in every move towards pornography, I was looking for the heart of Christ and I was looking for my own identity and I was looking for what it was to actually truly be immersed in, in that soul banquet that God has planned for me. And as it is, I keep going to the pig trough that the world offers. Mm. I'm saying, turn away from the pig trough, come home, come to your senses, come back to your father's house like the prodigal. You might think you've spent all your inheritance and God says, no, you haven't. Come back. I've got sandals for your feet. I've got robes for you around your body. You know, I've got a ring for your finger. I've got this massive fatty calf. We're going to have a right great barbecue. Come on, love. Let's get on. That's good. Thank you. Thank you, James. That was fantastic. Just quickly, I, um, I think with a lot of these young men, the issue may be, 
okay, well, you talk a lot about Christ and being Christ-centered, but what are some of the things that young men could do to, to really um, learn about the love Christ has for them and really discover that? Because I, I find it hard to convince guys because I also, I love, you know, I love spending a lot of time in, in front of the Blessed Sacrament and talking to our Lord and, yeah. and really, you know, that's where I feel most consoled now in my life um, with our Lord there. But I, I find, I'm trying to tell people, but I find it hard. And obviously it's grace that has to come in and our Lord has his timing. But what are some things that we can talk to guys about um, to help them look, on this journey? I, I, I would say this to them. I mean, look, whatever happens is all the time we're being educated by the world. Mm. Something somewhere, thoughts are coming to mind. We're looking at YouTube, we're running off TikTok, whatever it is people are doing today and all these things. And I'd say to people, I'd say, look, said, if Christ is true, and he literally is the gateway to the most fulfilled life imaginable, then you're mad not to go and try and walk through that gate. You're mad. And if it's not true, once you've given it a go, well, so be it. But if you haven't given it a go, are you crazy? It's like having the winning lotto numbers right in front of you and you decide to shut your eyes. It's like, duh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or having the, the latest iPhone and saying, oh, I don't need electricity, get lost. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, so, so I would say to them, I'd say, go and look at Father Mike Schmidt online. Go and look at Trent Horn, you know, or, um, or all these other guys that are out there, Matt Frad, you know, or Jason Everett. Go, go, go and look at some of the guys out there. Go and listen to what they're saying. Mm. I mean, you've got never before has a generation had so many stories and so much truth about the faith and people's testimonies of living the faith. Never have they had so much at their fingertips under the doona, on the toilet, I don't care where you are, you can watch it anywhere and everywhere. You know, as I said, get in that bathroom, you want to be in half an hour in there, don't be looking at porn, look at, look at what our lady's saying, look at what the Lord is doing in people's lives, look at the people who've had, you know, they've died, and they've had a taste of what, what it's like after death. It's a real thing, eternity is real, eternity is a lot longer than our life on earth, get serious about it, that's what I'd say. If they don't want to give it a go, up to them. That's great. They miss out, they, they, they miss out on the opportunity to have all the promises that Christ gives. Yeah, Peace, man. joy, complete joy, life to the full. Yeah. You know, my father's prepared a place for you. All this, mm. it's up to them, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, just, and then just finally, one thing I, I have a lot of... Uh, friends with same-sex attraction. I, I work in the media industry. And so um, a, a lot of the guys I work with and, and girls have same-sex attraction. Um, but yeah. there's this issue with like, I can, I can happily talk to my friends about porn addiction and the issues with that, even if they are atheists um, or, or they perhaps yeah. haven't discovered Christ yet. But I am very hesitant yeah. with my friends with same-sex attraction to talk about um the love of Christ. And I think it's a trick of the devil um, because I, I feel like, you know, the culture that we're in has sort of made it very difficult to talk about um, their personal sort of sexuality um, with them um, because I feel like I'm um, forcing something upon them, if that makes sense. So, yes, it does. I'm and, and yeah. And so what, what is the best way to help our friends that may have same-sex attraction, not necessarily to help them with same-sex attraction, but just to help them as, as a friend. Well, well I can't can we remember, do? I re remember in my own journey, what happened is somebody said to me, do you want more love in your life? 
Mm. Well, everybody wants more love in their life. If they're really honest, they want more love. That's it, full stop. Mm. The other thing is this is, you know, when I meet people, I don't see anybody, as I said earlier, as a label. Mm. I'm, I'm literally looking for where they experience despair in their life. And I, speak to, I want to speak a word of hope. I look mm. for where they're isolated. And I say, oh, come and join a community of us. We're all broken. None of us are perfect. But still come and join us, you know? Mm. Um, where people, um, you know, where they may experience pain. I, I say, I understand pain. I've had so much pain. But I found a sense of healing and restoration. And people are always interested to hear, how did you find that? Mm. You know, so, um, you know, if I'd been a total, you know, lost bag, I say, oh, I'm used to lost like crazy. But I, I've been learning slowly what it means to love and to love healthily. And, it, and it's really changed my heart, my relationships. Oh, wow. How did you do that? Mm. And, and often, particularly with my friends who are lesbian and gay, who perhaps if they're new friends, often I, I, I don't bring Christ into this for a long time. I just come alongside them and help them to understand. I'm just as human as them. Yeah. I get let down. I get betrayed. Yes. I feel powerless. I get walked all over. Sometimes I walk over other people. Uh, but what I also do is, and this is really important, is I try and listen to where their hearts are at. You know, I've, and I often say to them, tell me your story. Just tell me your story. I'd love to hear your life story. You know, what? hardly any of us have ever told another human being our entire life story. Mm. And it's very, very true of people who are same-sex attracted because there was nobody there in their, in their childhood years and their teenage years. You know, I sit down with a guy and nearly always and I'm talking to some form of guy who's very sexually active and out in the gay community. He nearly always tells me about his first sexual experience when he was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Every one of them, really, they've been sexually abused. They say, "Oh, it's fine. Yeah, I enjoyed it." I'm like, "You've been having sex since the age of six. You don't know how not to have sex, which is why you do it night after night and go on the apps and the rest of it. But you don't realise that actually that isn't that isn't the most fulfilling, healthy way of life to live. You know, you don't have to go have to go to the sexual health clinic every three months." You know, that, that doesn't have to be a part, part of your future. If that's their choice, so be it. But actually, they also do have another choice. So I, I, I would say sexuality is way, way further down the line. And, and of course, the bottom line is this is, even among the straight, and I don't like using that word, but you know what I mean, <laughs> among the straight community, there's plenty of people who are pretty perverted out there, but we just don't know it. So let's not single out the LGBT community. You know, they've got different needs and different things. I appreciate that. But, but ultimately, the calling is this, is we all have despair. We all have, we've all been betrayed. Um, we all feel isolated. We all feel a bit unloved. We've all been rejected. And so we seek to meet each other where we are in those areas. And, and, and we seek to bring Christ's understanding to that person's life, often without even using the name of Christ. And, I find that eventually people say, what is it about you? Why do you stick with me? Why are you so interested in me? Why do you smile at me? And why, how can, if you really knew me, you'd reject me. I'd say, no, I, I really do want to know you so I can really accept you. So I can show you, so I can show you that all the places where you don't love yourself, I already love you. Mm, fantastic. And just finally, this is, um, you know, I have uh, the, another portion of friends, and I'm sure you have the same, who have started on this journey to, to relationship with our Lord, but perhaps they're still falling into the same 
um, bad habits that perhaps they've had for many, many years, um, yeah. you know, very regularly. And that's, you know, that, 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 and I experienced that myself. Um, but I wanted to hear what you have to say about that and how you try to um, give them hope uh, in those situations where they're maybe even converted to Catholicism or maybe they've um, really decided, okay, I'm going to commit myself to our Lord and, and form a relationship um, but they're still struggling with um, really, really dark wounds, I guess you could say. How, how do you go about helping those sorts of people? Well, there's two, there's two things I'd say to that. First of all is when we come to Christ or we start to take him seriously, and let's be honest, we're all on that journey. It's a continuous mm. journey of yes, fear yes. and trembling for our salvation, as Paul says. But um, when we come to Christ, so basically he turns a light on. It's not, it's not the full massive, you know, 3,000 wattage, you know, in your face kind of thing. He turns, he just starts turning our lights a very gentle light. And we begin to start seeing ourselves for who we really are. So that journey begins to feel really quite difficult and painful. But actually, it is no different to what it used to be. It's just we're seeing it through the light. That's one thing. And we're not to be scared off by that. It, if actually, when all this stuff starts to rise up and it's becoming hard, I go, praise God. It shows God's at work in you. Don't run away from it. It means he's doing something. That's great. You wanted him to change it. Now he's doing it. Don't run away. Mm. You know, but we do need each other around for that. The other thing I have to say to people is this. It's, and we're not aware, really, of just how deep a well our world has thrown us into. We are like Joseph, whose brothers threw him down the well. But what happens is this, is we're trying to climb out of a 100-meter well where the world is saying... Living in this well 100 meters below ground is normal. You've got to stay here, stay here, stay here, stay here. And we're trying to climb out that well. And I'm saying this, it's small, really small daily steps. But sometimes we slip on the moss on the side of the wall of the well and we fall back down to the 100 meter mark. But for the most part, we learn to get stronger calves and thighs and glutes and we start to climb the wall of that well. And it might seem dark for a long, long time, but there will come a day, and I know this because I've seen it in my own life and the lives of many others, when we start seeing a different type of light that's 30 meters away from the top of the well. And then eventually there comes a point where one day, if we are really willing to, to persevere as St. Paul calls us to, we fall over the top of the well and we realize that, yes, we've just walked through the gate into that verdant pastures where Jesus says, I will give you repose and your cup's going to overflow and even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's not the valley of death, it's just the shadow of death. And I'm walking you through it to say, do you want to die or not? No. So we'll die now so you can live forever. Don't try and live forever now. It doesn't work. Listen to what I say to you. So I say to guys, step by step by step. And if it hurts and it's becoming ugly, it's highly likely God's really at work. Praise God. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> James, you're fantastic, mate. Thank you so much for your time. That was really Thank good. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, look, I look forward to seeing what you continue to do and what God does through you. Because I think um, we need more people like you. <laughs> um, Thanks yeah, for the really, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, my All friend. Right. God bless you. Keep up the great work. Thank you, James. Have a good day. Mate. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.